Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Chris Katarna. Chris is co-author of Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance. It's a best-selling, internationally acclaimed book. Chris publicly foresaw the outcome of the UK's 2016 referendum on EU membership, popularly called Brexit, and the 2016 election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. His mental map-making skills and clarifying speech are frequently sought after by TV, radio, print, and social media on four continents. His essays appear everywhere from The Guardian to Time Magazine to Vogue, and his weekly letters addressed to the chief cartographers of the 21st century are deemed required Sunday reading by some of the world's smartest people and boldest explorers. We had a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Chris Katarna. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hey, Scott. It's great to be here. And you have co-authored a book with your colleague Ian Golden called The Age of, Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance. Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for you. Can I convince you that you didn't author sure. the book? Yeah, yeah. So I, was, I, I don't know why I had that pregnant pause there. But so I, could this be, if you were like trying to sell fewer books, uh, could you title it something like if, if Francis Fukuyama's title is, you know, the end of history, famously looking back or reflecting this like kind of Hegelian sort of, hey, history, the ideal has kind of realized itself and liberal democratic free market capitalism is the only game in town our biggest rival communism we kind of put down and ta-da this could be kind of like the return of history right that that we're in a place where very you know not long after fukuyama's thesis was pretty popular now it seems like hey things are pretty open the world's a pretty there's a lot of technological progress and advance but also there's tremendous disruption and, and, and a real sense of uncertainty Mm, that that idea of a return to history, uh, I think, is great because, you know, when Fukuyama wrote The End of History in the 1990s, there was kind of this sense that um, the, the paths of the future are narrowing down, right? They're simplifying. Uh, we won. Cold War is over. Uh, you know, liberal democracy is the only game in town and really... You know, the big questions of how should we order society? What's the future going to look like? It kind of felt in the 1990s that those were more or less going to be answered. You know, fast forward to today, and it just seems like, you know, the, the possibilities of the future have, have widened right up again, right? I mean, we are, because we are on all of these simultaneous voyages into the unknown, right? Like into, into the economic unknown. I mean, are we entering a future of like low growth? Uh, of you know robots taking all of our jobs away uh, into the political unknown where you know people are asking themselves you know can democracy still work do we still trust our public institutions uh, how do we survive in an environment of fake news uh, into a social unknown where there's massive demographic change and you know the previously sort of dominant groups are starting to wonder are we still going to be dominant uh, and all of that taking place in this technological unknown where there's just this cacophony of voices trying to compete to understand it all. So, you know, we're in this moment where a lot of people feel uh, practically vulnerable. Uh, they feel uh, powerless because somehow politics isn't working for them. Uh, they wonder about how their community is changing and if there's a place for it in their future. Um, and at the same time, there's, all of these different voices trying to confuse it. And if that's the moment that we're in now, uh, what my co-author and I try to do with Age of Discovery is say, okay, you know, let's, let's take a deep breath, let's take it step back, and let's try to bring some perspective to this moment. And I think it is in these moments where there are so many possible futures in front of us that uh, looking to history is most powerful in terms of helping us to find analogies and help us to find some, some narrative to, to just make sense of it and to imagine uh, how we might create the future that we want. Yeah, and you, you actually, you know, there, there seems to be some parallels, which is why you wrote the book comparing it to the Renaissance, but you know, that, that, that what's going on in Renaissance Europe, you've got all this promise, but it brings with it some perils and problems. We, you have um, all this wealth 
that's new wealth that's brought into the world through new trade routes and through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have this fascinating section of the book about Dutch IOUs and how in, in Italy there were IOUs and you could you could trade and these IOUs like you didn't have to pay up front for all the all the expenses and so you could this IOU had real value but they could only be exchanged between two parties it was private gentleman's kind of agreement but then these things became like currency and it's mm. like buying uh, buying mortgages and things like this you know that that we have today but you, you there's this chance there's this challenge of how do you get wealth into well-being right how you get how you dis distribute like the aggregate gains widely to all the people so that people cuz don't feel the stratification doesn't leave people feeling left out and marginalized and also how do we forge new ties of belonging right because as the social order gets disrupted by all sorts of changes that are scientific technological religious you know information is coming at people through things like the printing press and all these that that people feel the, the 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 old things that get dislodged aren't always replaced by new ones right i mean i think that the the biggest lesson from history is that in in times of of massive change uh you really need to look for the two sides of it. You need to look for the flourishing of genius, you need to look for the flourishing of risk. Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned finance. Uh, an intercontinental market of money began in Europe in, in the 1500s, and it made it possible to fund uh, you know, bolder and bigger risk-taking, these massive voyages, which were commercial voyages to, you know, to find new spice, find new paths to the Spice Islands, all of that. Uh, and at the same time, it made crises, financial crises, uh, bigger when they occurred. And you know, if we think back to the 1990s, again, as sort of a reference point, you know, so much of how we looked out at the world was at the positive possibilities, the positive possibilities of global trade, uh, of global finance, of the internet. Um, and you know, really, we should have, with a bit of historical perspective, we should have had the wisdom to, e- even 25 years ago, to say, hey, while we're charging into this brave new world, uh, we really should be thinking about what are the downside risks here? How, how you know, when we are opening up the world, how are we making ourselves more vulnerable? When we are, that was such a fast thing too, right? I mean, like basically, it, you know, the late it, until the fall of communism, this sense of free market capitalism. I mean, in 1941, right? There's only like nine liberal democracies, or whatever, mm, in the that's world. Right. You count them on two hands. Yeah, two hands. Yeah, I mean, then, 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 you know, even in the 80s, in the it, you know, with with economic prosperity going on in the West, relatively, you know, still like it's it's not obvious that that's going to be. It gets the Fukuyama thing. I mean, there's a whole alternative mm. socialist system and communist system that seems at mm. least to be providing basic service. You talk about this in the book. It's at mm. least, and then in a day within like a decade, <laughs> and you point out in the book, really, the only country in the world that rejects some notion of free trade interconnectedness is North Korea. Is North Korea? I mean, yeah, that, that's a. Which is astounding, right? When you see those satellite shots of Southeast Asia at night, mm. and there's just a black spot where North Korea is because it's not. It's, but that's, I mean, it's that's just such a, a a crazy change in such a condensed amount of time. Mm. And I think that's why. I mean, we all feel it, and it's not just in economics. I mean, it seems in almost every dimension of life today, we feel that we are in the midst of a giant transformation, and and. and and the challenge is how do we how do we put meaning on top of it? You know, one of the things that I I find most frustrating is the language that we use right now to grapple with the present. You know, we talk about this disruptive moment, we talk about rapid change, but for me, I don't even know that those words mean anything. For me, those are just placeholders that say everything is happening, and I don't know what sense to make of it. So I guess. I don't know. I'm just going to muddle through. And 500 years ago, uh, this was a very similar feeling in Europe when you had the advent of the printing press. Uh, you had these uh, voyages of discovery that completely remade Europe's map of the world. You had these regions of the world that had been on the margins that are suddenly claiming center stage in world affairs. You have these these new powers of creation. Like People like Da Vinci and Copernicus were putting into human hands for the first time that before that had always belonged to God. And, and people just felt, my God, the pace of change and the scale of change uh, makes it impossible to, to navigate this storm. And you have people like Machiavelli uh, counseling 
the leaders of Italy saying, this is a dangerous moment for all of you. And the chief risk you face right now is fatalism. That, that you know, faced with this tide of change, you are just going to drift with rather than resist it and be swamped by it. And so, you know, 500 years ago, they said, we need to take a step back and give ourselves a narrative so that we can start to shape this tide of events. And for them, it was to look back to classical Greece, to classical Rome, and say, let's imagine, and, you know, there was a lot of historical make-believe going on there, but, but let's imagine that that was a golden age. And how can we take the best parts of that age, the civility, the humanity, the sense of proportion, all of these virtues, and recreate them in, in our own day? And, and I feel like that's, that's the game we need to play with ourselves. We need to actively create meaning, create narratives, create positive stories to work toward so that we can take you know, all of this political and economic and technological and social disruption and make out of it something, something positive and progressive because it's not just going to happen by itself. Yeah, right. And Aristotle, I mean, he, he's thinking like there's something possible like Aristotelian wisdom, right? That he, I mean, I guess... Something that Machiavelli, I guess, is assuming is where every great sci-fi novelist and screenplay writer assumes that human nature basically doesn't change that much. Mm. That that's, I mean, that's why we love like right. dystopian things or sci-fi things, right? Because it's interesting to see the drama of human nature, which is pretty familiar in really unfamiliar imaginative contexts, right? Mm. And that's what Machiavelli, I guess, is imagining, right? And that you're saying that, hey, we do know some things about the human condition, right? That 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 mm. that can help us. Mm. negotiate things that are uncertain i mean this is so now we're getting to really big ideas right but uh so it's because there are some things that are constant about human nature that means we can look back 100 years or 500 years and and find real wisdom take real lessons from from people in similar circumstances you know it's it's the same reason that we could read william shakespeare today and still enjoy it because the characters are identifiable right the issues the family relationships the the ambition the ego all of that is is still fundamentally the same but you know what people like aristotle were talking about is you know yeah we kind of go around in circles but through the power of wisdom each time around the circle we can if we want sort of spiral a little bit higher Right. So we come back to the same situation, but we've got more wisdom now to deal with it differently. And and basically that's the that's the argument for social progress, right? As as individuals, our nature hasn't changed very much, but as a society, we can we can capture and, and install the wisdom, sort of like operating system updates to help us collectively operate in a different way. So that we come to a similar situation, but this time we handle it differently. Uh, you know, whether it is uh, issues about gender or, or power or war or the economy, right? Similar forces affecting us, but we come at it with, with a new perspective. It's funny because you quote from a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where basically Calvin is <laughs> I love like, Calvin you know, and Hobbes. Who doesn't love Calvin and Hobbes? <laughs> exactly. I mean, who does? Exactly. Uh, you know, this, he has this scene where he's like, hey, the future's here. Where's my flying car? Where's my jetpack? This is the, and you're kind of like, this is the mistake about thinking the future is something, this one technological thing or something that mm. that's, that's arrived at. It's only achieved. And you basically, I mean, you talk about the counter prophet of the future, Bill Gates, who I mm. guess, you know, it was in the nineties or something saying you'll be able in the future to do, be entertained, to conduct mm. significant commerce, mm. to educate. So all this without leaving the comfort of, your chair, or in this case, my homegrown <laughs> podcasting your studio, bunker, your <laughs> yeah, bunker, bunker, the yeah. bunker, the bunker. Yeah, right. I mean, you said that's. I mean, it's interesting because it's it's not as sexy on one level, but that's the, the future. And you you talk about in the book that our interconnectedness through things like the internet and, and complex handheld computers and things like this. Mm. This is the new age of discovery, where where the whole world changes because of exploration and market development. And, and all mm. of a sudden you're living in this incredibly connected world. Mm. You know, so there are a couple of things there. One is there is this big debate happening in, you know, like, especially in the academic world of, you know, economists, for example, about, uh, you know, is innovation slowing down, right? Are, are we going to, over the next 50 years, create the kind of transformations in technology that we did in the past hundred. I mean, you know, if you think of what happened in the 20th century, I mean, we invented computers, we invented 
you know, automobiles and 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 airplanes uh, and atomic bombs. I mean, that was really where we went from uh, like a pre-industrial society to to suddenly this industrial age. And you've got a lot of people who kind of just look at what we managed to do then and say, in the future, whatever like big ideas we think we've got, uh, they're not going to amount to as much as the big changes we've already worked upon society. Um, and, and I'm one of the people, my co-author and I in the book, uh, you know, we, we try to make the argument that that's just, you know, that's just, I was going to use a, a swear, but I don't know what you're. You can totally use anything are. you want. <laughs> you can use whatever <laughs> you, know, like, you want. <laughs> that's just bullshit. That's just yeah. bullshit. And it, and it reflects exactly the kind of limited linear thinking about the future uh, in that Kelvin and Hobbes cartoon you described. You know, in, in that cartoon, Kelvin talks about the future as, you know, flying cars. And what's really interesting, flying cars is an interesting story about the future because where did the idea of flying cars come from? And the idea of flying cars entered uh, American popular culture in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, you know, kind of two big things had just happened. Uh, everyone started to drive around in cars and everyone started to fly around in airplanes. And, and so in that cultural moment, uh, the coolest, you know, most futuristic thing people could possibly imagine was that one day my cars will be able to fly too, right? It was perfect example of how linear our thinking about the future tends to be. And, you know, if we fast forward to today, we have so much evidence that, you know, no, we don't yet fly around in cars yet, although there are some people working on that, but there are so many other dimensions of society that are, are operating in ways that were just unimaginable 50 years ago. Like, like what you and I are doing right now. And so much of the future uh, that we're going to have in this age of discovery is going to be in these new dimensions. Uh, what AI is going to do for us and what blockchain is going to do for us and what genetic modification is going to do for us. There's a real powerful analogy to Copernicus, right? Who basically, he took his world's understanding of the universe with the earth at its center which the Bible had given him. And he said, no, actually, math tells me that we've got it backwards. I mean, he put into human hands uh, the power to describe the nature of the universe. And we're doing the same thing today with many of these technologies. And it's, in some ways, it's just not possible to, uh, to see, to, to project forward how much they're going to change us. All we can do, I think, is look to history and know that it's going to be a a, a, a deep transformation. And yeah, the question I mean, is, will I, we have the wisdom to <laughs> to exercise these powers? What I'm amazed at is like when you watch Star Trek, even the original 1960s, mm, and like mm, people mm. pull up these handheld devices, and like computer, mm. tell me about, and you're like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> now everybody has the capacity for what in the 60s was imagined in a kind of optimistic sci-fi, you know adventure exploration story everybody has mm, that now mm, mm. i mean it's just it's remarkable mm. and yet you know the other thing I, I love star trek the other thing is you know if i walk if i go back to like the next generation the programs in the 90s you know in some ways you can see how they were still stuck in their thinking um you know they had all of these fancy lit up panels but unlike ours where the interface dynamically changed they're the the buttons were, were, were soft keys, but they never changed. The, the displays, you know, I needed to pick up this that had that display and this other thing had this other display. The idea that one day the, uh, the interface itself could change didn't seem to, to, to penetrate. And then, you know, other things that today, I mean, how far our gender relations in society, for example, have changed. Uh, the role of men and women, uh, sexuality. You can go back to these older visions of the future and see how even though they imagined a new technological world, they poured into it their present social world. And, and that's really fascinating when we go back to old pictures of the future, because actually, this kind of goes back to the Aristotle notion of wisdom, the, the biggest and most important innovations, that they're they're not technological, they're social. And I think that's going to continue to be true as well. In, in the book, you say uh, in a chapter uh, talking about the Vitruvian man, 
Mm. You say that the widening gap between rich and poor betrayed the limits of the period's high-minded idealism. Mm. Humanists exalted man, but see, many seem to ignore the squalid conditions of ordinary men. Mm. Now, you argue in the book, and it's funny because um, Stephen Pinker just had a piece in the, I think it was the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, maybe, or New York Times, or it's talking about the Enlightenment and all these. Yeah. Just, you, you document this in your book. Wonderful. By any standard, we live in a much better world. Health, poverty, war, like, you know, democracy. Uh, and yet, it's, we see these rise, this rise of populism, which you talk about in the book towards the end in the revised edition, right, where you, you even talk about Donald Trump, but you have the Brexit mm. movement in, in, on your side of the ocean there, and then over mm. here we have this, the, the rise of Donald Trump, mm. which seems like it, it's, it's this sort of the forgotten man kind of syndrome, or people mm. that are, it, it's less people in abject poverty very often, mm. but people who feel like they're being left mm. behind. And it goes back to, again, those things about wealth being, you know, being translated into well-being and, and, and mm. the aggregate gains being spread out and these things. Mm. I mean, that, so you see these parallel kind of pushbacks, right, mm. Mm. in our mm. century. And I mean, it, so, I mean, the first thing I would say is it's not that people feel like they're being left behind. They actually are, in many ways, being left behind. I mean, uh, in the U.S., life expectancy is falling, which is... I mean, an, an astonishing thing. Wait, maybe a bit of back. So why do I care about life expectancy? As a social scientist, life expectancy is the one most useful statistic. Because everything and you want, else And you want to see the flying car someday, right? Well, and, <laughs> and you got to live to get there, right? And once you're dead, nothing else matters. But life expectancy, this is the one statistic that rolls up everything else, our health, our education, conflict, you know, war, violence, crime, everything ultimately affects how long can we expect to live. And the fact that in the United States, where, uh, you know, total, the total economy, GDP, has, you know, uh, you know, grown by almost half in the last 25 years, that somehow life expectancy has fallen. I mean, that tells us that there's just, there's just something really messed up happening in in whatever social technology there is to translate the wealth, which is booming, into well-being, which along the most fundamental measure is, is falling. So, so what's up with that? And I think what it is, is we're seeing that, yes, the aggregate story is, has never been better, has never been better in human history. I mean, you know, as a species, we're healthier, wealthier, more educated, and like twice you know, bigger than has ever been the case on this planet. Any other civilization in the history of this planet would gladly trade places with us because in comparison, we are just blessed with so much abundance. That's the big picture story. And yet the distribution story is entirely different. And you talk about other old books from the 90s or the early 2000s, uh, Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat, was this story for the internet age, right? I mean, it, so many of us read it about how the barriers to being able to participate in the global market and reach your customers, everything are just disappearing, which is true. But what we've actually discovered is the reality is that our life is full of practical frictions, practical barriers. I mean, we can't participate, right? Like maybe um, I would love to go to, I don't know, New York or San Francisco or Seattle because there's booming job market and everything, but I can't afford to live there. Right, or maybe where I am, I've got uh, young children in school, or I've got elderly parents that I need to take care of. Right, there are so many practical frictions in our lives. I can't step out of work long enough to retrain for a new degree because then how do I put food on the table? Right, and those obstacles have been the cost of those obstacles have been magnified now because if you do, if you are in the right place at the right time. I mean, now is a golden age. And if you're somehow in the wrong place right now, then it feels like that golden world that other people participate in is, is unreachable. It might as well be on the moon. And it creates this terrible bitterness to be, uh, to be locked away from it. And so that's the, that's the challenge, right? That we're not, the way I think of it is that like right now, human civilization is just teeming with energy and and it's either going to tear us apart or we're going to you know direct it to to thrust ourselves upward but but the the forces that want to tear society apart they're real 
and, and we've seen so much evidence of it over the last couple of years. And so is this like the what economists talk about, like the kind of equity efficiency tension, right? Because mm-hmm. if you do too much to sort of distribute things where we'd all like to, you, you risk kind of stifling off creativity and dynamism. Mm-hmm. And yet, if if you don't figure out a way to turn wealth into well-being and, and, and to get the aggregate spread out more, then... Mm-hmm people will kind of tear down and reject the, th- the the vehicle that's actually bringing the aggregate up, right? As we're seeing right. with the rejection of, of, you know, you have great stuff in the book too about globalization, globalism, and how, mm. what a poor choice of nomenclature that was because it made it mm. seem like an impersonal process and mm. not something that was a doctrine that could be debated mm. and assented to or revised. Mm. And so you mm. say a lot of the public just felt left out of this thing. It's just this thing mm. that's, and improving our lives, and yet I feel mm-hmm. left behind. Right? I mean, that this mm-hmm. is a this is where the rub is, right? Mm-hmm. This, uh, yeah. I mean, we were definitely sold on the idea that globalization was this like technocratic, logical, rational thing. Right? That's what an isation is. Right? An isation is a process, uh, and if it's a process, then it must be a rational thing. And so it it became in public irrational to oppose uh, this process. The, <laughs> the problem we've, reached, we've come to today is so now we realize that, okay, there may have been some economic process going on there, but there was also a political choice being made about how do we distribute the gains and the losses and, you know, yeah, um, these, these equity questions. Now is a moment where maybe, you know, politics could help us to answer these equity questions. But over the last 25 years, so many people have become disenchanted with politics that fewer and fewer people, I think, believe that politics can get anything done. I mean, I, th- I think we see it right now in the gun, the gun debate in, in the United States. I mean, one of the big conversations is, you know, why are we here again with these same issues? And if, if democracy could get something done, if politics could get something done, it would have done it by now. And the fact that it hasn't means that it can't. And so we just feel stuck. And I think that it was, it was that feeling of being stuck that made uh, you know, the Brexit campaign over here, uh, you know, Trump's campaign um, on your side of the Atlantic, so compelling to people. Because here's someone saying, that, yeah, I, I think that the politics is messed up. And I'm just going to walk in and you know, overturn the table. And see if maybe if we start all over again, if we reset the pieces, maybe we can set it up uh, in a way that makes us better off. Because right now, looking at the board, none of us can see how to get there. Yeah, it's uh, it's the irony of that is like somebody like somebody like Donald Trump, who ran as a as a sort of change, chaotic shakeup candidate, because it seems like governing is not something that he really had a lot of experience or gets the sense for doing. And he's great with sort of um, campaigning and media things. It actually is becoming seeming a status quo presidency because nothing gets done. <laughs> so the person that was injected to change the system winds up, you just kind of, the bureaucracies kind of function as they do. And I mean, in some departments, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, EPA or something where somebody is a, is a sort of capable, whether or not you like their ideas, but they're a capable administrator, they can make some changes here or there. But, you know, it's funny that we wind up with more gridlock and seemingly more status quoism. Mm, I mean, what's so... Um, this is actually the the next book that I'm working on now is 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 thinking about what is happening in our politics and you know one thing that I think that uh, Donald Trump is master at is playing both sides of this new divide between sort of people who want uh, a more open world like the business people who want trade and immigration and all these things and people who think that that's the source of our evils and they want to close the world down. And, you know, my analysis on how he got elected is that he, he spoke the language of a closed world, right? We're going we're gonna to close down the borders, going to be, you know, reject refugees and immigrants, going to pull us out of these trade deals. Um, but in power, he tends to act uh, to serve the interests of those who want the open world, you know, especially sort of on the, on the right and want an open business community. And he continues to do this masterfully. Uh, I mean, I think he's doing it again on, on the gun debate, you know, his latest tweet saying, yeah, you know, I think that we're going to have to impose some restrictions and ban bump stocks. And, and yet, you know, at the same time, sending his, um, 
sending his minions to the meetings of the NRA and, you know, being tight in pockets with them and giving them assurances that at the end of the day, I'm not going to upset your apple cart, but I'm going to tell those people what they want to hear. And we live in such divided media spheres now that uh, people hear what they want to hear and they don't necessarily see the actions that they don't want. And so it's possible to play these different groups at the same time. Even if you put it all together in one room, you say, these are contradictions. How can you possibly be in both these spheres at once? And that open-closed debate, right, that is on both sides of the spectrum, right? It's not so much a partisan debate or a left-right debate as you have people on, you know, on the left, probably in both sides of the Atlantic, that I can think of at least, that are... Yeah. open more for an open world more for a closed world i mean you know bernie right. sanders and donald trump talked in similar language about trade deals and you have it on the right you have the internationalist sort of uh business people neocons versus the kind of more nationalist kind of closed order people yeah absolutely i mean this is so i think this is the new dimension of politics really i mean uh hillary clinton was someone for an open world you know despite what's you know here in the campaign there, yeah, she did sort of take a harder line on immigration. But really, I think everybody believed that she was going to legislate towards, uh, you know, a U.S. that was friendly to immigration and friendly to trade uh, and yet also friendly to workers. So, you know, sort of open and on the left, in contrast to Bernie Sanders, who's very clearly advocating uh, a, a, like something on the closed left. And, uh, you know, uh, most of the Republican nominees before Trump won, they were they were somewhere on the open right. You know, Jeb Bush wasn't going to do to he wasn't going to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. All the people giving him money wanted that deal to happen. And so, you know, the free space on the bingo card, at least in the primaries, was to be on the closed right. You know, someone on the right who's pro-business and anti-trade <laughs> at the same time or anti-immigrant. Uh and so Donald Trump picked the, the free space on the bingo card, right? Pick the free space, win the Republican nomination. So you kind of win the open right by default as the Republican nominee, and then say enough things that appeal to the people on the closed left. You know? So in our little sort of, you know, four boxes of the political sphere that we've just imagined, you know, he kind of, he owned one, he captured another with the Republican nomination, and he made inroads on the third. And having, you know, some support in three out of the four boxes, you know, maybe it's not surprising that that, that was a winning strategy, ultimately, in, in this moment. But purely, but it begins where you're right, that, you know, on both the left and the right, uh, we've got this fundamental split around do we want an open world and a closed world. And again, you know, as we look at what, what we've done to the world, to our society over the past 25, 30 years, it's no surprise that this has become the new axis of political disagreement. You know, you know I think back to you know, 19th century works on American politics, like, you know, Alain de Tocqueville's, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And, you know, that America, where there's this vibrant discourse happening, had very thick borders with the outside world. And so as a democracy, you really are talking amongst yourselves about what we want to have happen here. Today, you know, borders are thin, and in some domains, they don't even exist. And so, this big new question is, well, okay, how do we exchange with the rest of the world? What do I want our relationship to be with the rest of the world? So that, that old division of left versus right is kind of like standing at the border of our country and looking inwards. But now we also have to stand at the border of our country and look outwards and ask ourselves, well, what do we want our politics about that to be? And, you know, the reason that I think... Uh, you know, both the Democrat and Republican establishment were just just completely blindsided by the 2016 election, is that the whole infrastructure of politics in the U.S., you know, in my home Canada, here in the U.K., it is built around this linear left versus right spectrum. And and just isn't, is it, it, it it's like generals always say, you know, we, we, our army is built to fight the last war <laughs> yeah, right? to yeah. win the previous war. And it's the same thing with the Democratic and the Republican Army. They were built to win in a world of, you know, Clinton versus Bush Sr. And, and yeah, going yeah. forward, that's just, not the, that's just not the army that you need to win the war anymore. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen Lipless, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. It's interesting to, you mentioned de Tocqueville and you know, de Tocqueville thought that something about this American democratic project was this combination of like modern democratic practices and processes and pre-modern, almost like aristocratic values, right? You have these kind of mm. things from religion and philosophy mm. and art and the arts and decency and uh, honor like you, you have some old virtues that are infused into a sort of different sort of political praxis and he thought that that's part of why the american democracy to the degree it was working it was and that's a big debate now do we are you know i'm wondering what are there similar kind of i mean you talk a little bit this, about this at the end of the book and, and what kind of human values do we need it's it, it, so that i mean because right we could have the right sort of bureaucratic processes and democratic structures and yet we see this now we have we have in america we have a pretty good tradition of stable civil democratic institutions and yet there's this wide wide consensus that this it's not working for some reason mm-hmm. so i mean i think that right there you've asked the question that is is the why is the that's the question that I think has to be the compass for the country over the next five, 10 years. I mean, so, I mean, in Age of Discovery, you know, my co-author and I, we talk about this now as a renaissance. So we're in a renaissance now. And uh, it's important I really, to note, right, that, that it doesn't always feel like you're in a renaissance when you're in it, right? Well, because like, you right. Know, it's funny because the term isn't even used much till the 19th century to look back mm-hmm. on a century that looked back at another golden age, right? So when you're in it, it doesn't often feel like the golden age because it's so disruptive. Right. And, that, and, and, and so that's how, I, that's how I hope to connect with the mood of the now, which is, you know, and in the book, you know, we try to recreate the spirit of the renaissance moment and recognize that. It, it's not actually a golden age. It's, it's an age of flourishing genius and risk. And, you know, the center of the first Renaissance was, was Florence. And this was a city that on the one hand produced more artistic masters than the rest of Europe combined. I mean, this was the birthplace of da Vinci and Michelangelo and Machiavelli. Uh, and on the other hand was the city where this, uh, you know, this populist false prophet named Savonarola waltzes in, whips up the population, kicks the Medici out, installs himself as king. He 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 creates this Christian and republic of uh, Christian religious republic of Florence, burn away liberal values, ignites a, a non Florentine citizen and a clergy member, right? Who's ineligible for office. He's yeah, kind of, he, he just kind of comes outside. in. I don't I don't care. <laughs> exactly. So you know very close parallel to, to Donald Trump as I argued in, in Time magazine last year. But so I, th- I look at America today, and I think that America is the Florence of our second renaissance. And that doesn't just mean this is where the genius is flourishing. It also means that this is ground zero where we discover how ill-suited so many of our current political, economic, social structures 
are to these present storms. And so we have to go through this, this terrifying, but you know, there is this silver lining, maybe also exciting process of reconstituting our society. I mean, I personally, I, I actually look at it as almost like a, a second founding moment, right? I mean, think of it as society is breaking. And what would be the new constitution? I don't mean it in, in, in you know, in, in practice, so let's have another constitutional convention, but in our, in our spirits of, of, you know, what is our role of citizen? What are our expectations? You know, what would be the new constitution for, for the world that we live in now, you know, where we do have, um, you know, sharp economic inequality, where we do have real fears about, is there going to be a labor market in the future? Is there going to be a, you know, a union movement in the future when no one works in factories anymore? Where we do have real questions about, is, is some kind of public discourse space possible given the fragmentation of the media environment? Where we wonder about the, you know, the capture of the political process and the regulatory process by big money, now that Citizens United says that, you know, money is speech and companies are persons and, um, you know, we can't seem to get things done on obvious issues of public security like gun control. In this moment, how deep do the uh, political and social innovations need to go in order for us to create that golden age that... Again, in aggregate, it looks possible, right? It looks possible. The, the, the technocrats, you know, stare at the world. And, you know, and all of those, all of those cyber geeks in, in, in uh, San Francisco, you know, like, I have these amazing technologies to solve every problem. So the possibilities are there. But what, you know, what's the social technology going to be? So that's my long-winded rant to go all the way back to your question and say, uh, I don't have the answer, but I believe that America is the lab where we search for the answer. And I mean, you need to find it right? because you are where the, the strains of this moment are greatest, where the genius is flourishing fastest and biggest, but also, as is so evident today, where the social strains are hardest on society. So if you can solve this, then the rest of us can too. But if you can't, <laughs> then that bodes well for, you know, my neighbor, Canada to the north and everyone else over here. <laughs> Chris, I'm not solving anything in this bunker, man. But, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I mean, I, if it goes really bad, I'm going to join you in there. It's, it's underground, <laughs> it's very, it? <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's lower level. Yeah, it's a, it's a finished basement. So it's, uh, it doesn't feel like a basement anymore. But, you know, it's interesting because I think that, that social technology question, I think there is a kind of new normal post sort of renaissance and modernity right in that mm. i mean you talk about the rapid change in that period and for most of world history right most people lived and died in a world pretty similar to their grandparents mm. i mean there are, and so there's not as much stress on the social arrangements mm. to catch up with these because the t right. technology doesn't advance as rapidly and then also there's not the yeah. means of delivery to spread the change so yeah. quickly yeah. but now we're in a place where we're constantly it seems in a place where we're Catching up where, 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 where things are, nobody's imagines, I think for the foreseeable future that we're going to live in a world like our grandparents mm. or our grandkids will live in a world, you know, the, the chain, you buy the, you buy the new iPhone, you immediately have buyer's remorse before you get, you pay for it. Yeah. Okay. I gotta, don't, don't look at my iPhone. It's old. <laughs> but so, I mean, how old is it? Seven, six? No, no, it's a six. It's a six. Well, so the battery swelled. And so they gave me uh, like basically a new phone replacement. And so I decided I'd get another year out of it. And, and then I'm still not con convinced on the notch and people's anyway, total aside. Uh, we can talk about Apple for a long time. But, I could, I could talk <laughs> Apple all day with you. So, you know, we talk about these social strains and I think you're right that uh, what is unique in our time is that you're right, that we don't expect that our children are going to live in a world that's anything like the world that we are living in now. Because business and society seems to be, technology is, is changing at revolutionary speed. And the strain is that so many of our institutions are moving at evolutionary speed, right? Much, much slower. So things like, uh, you know, our education system, right, is evolving much, much slower. And so we're asking ourselves, like, are we preparing people, children for the future world of work? I mean, I have, I have a friend who does, um, uh, does research and he's a, he's a world leader on education reform, flies around the world helping people with their systems. They did a, a massive survey of high school students in Canada. And one 
third of all kids in high school in Canada today have no intention of getting a full-time job in their lifetime. Like they, wow. that, that's wow. just the idea that you go and work for some company full-time is you know a fundamental idea of what work is and it's eroding because there are so many more possibilities, so many creative ways to earn revenue streams for yourself. Why would I give up all of those possibilities in exchange for one stable paycheck? But so this is why I think that there's a huge role for, uh, for government to help make this brave new world possible. You know, how do we make things like our healthcare, like our pensions uh, portable for a world of that kind of flexibility? Um, How do we, make education qualifications you know more flexible more right sized for for the job markets of the future and 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 so you know going way back to our discussion about like the the equity versus efficiency of the economy and how much work should we do to try to move things around um in the economy and 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 help distribute the gains i think it really is about moving things and investing to make these big institutions that are evolving slowly and struggling to keep up with the changing world, reinvesting in those institutions to make them more flexible so that you know, while especially the next generation um, are entering this brave new world, they've got more of a, a kind of a, a social support network that they can focus on the possibilities and, and uh, society can help manage some of the fears. And if we can get to that kind of place, then I am really excited about uh, the world for my children because it is just rich with possibilities that that even for me, uh, I can't imagine. You tell the story. Or you, I saw a, a discussion you did, I think, at the American Enterprise Institute, and hmm. they were talking about your kind of relative confidence in progress, I think the panelist said, and yet he was worried about this post-truth world we're in where there's, you know, we're facts i mean just don't don't seem to matter anymore you know you have you have someone like kelly and conway saying well i give alternative facts which we used to call falsehoods but now and and this is not and again this isn't on one unique side of the of the political spectrum or anything it's just you know we're we're all living in sort of not to make a false equivalency all the time but i mean we are all living in increasingly in echo chambers but you tell the story about was it the Aztecs or someone that the Spanish came and they they sent the, the 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 witch doctors out the magicians to go to go, the magicians to go curse the Spanish, mm. and they were shocked that nothing happened. And and but you actually kind of made the point that we're not in much different of a world that they're just two different stories. I think that this is so. For me, it's been a really uh, instructive and powerful parallel from the Renaissance, uh, specifically to to this question of of fake news and social media. Uh, and so the story, well, it, it's it's a historical account, but the story. The story goes that uh, you know the Spanish come to what is now Mexico and they're trying to conquer the Aztecs and the Aztec emperor Montezuma he sends his priests and he sends his his magicians to to cast a spell uh, on the Spanish and they come back to Montezuma and they report you know, our, our, our spells had no effect and you know to our modern mind I mean well duh I mean of course they didn't work because magic isn't real. But for the Aztecs, within their society, magic was real, right? It was, if, if I cast a curse on you, I knew you had been cursed. You knew you had been cursed. Everyone who saw that knew that you were cursed and so treated you as if you were cursed. They treated you differently after I cursed you. And it was as real for them as, you know, as, as, as our names are real to each other. These aren't parts of the physical world. They're part of the shared social world. And and yet, you know, these these new conquistadors from 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 uh, from Europe, they didn't share that world, and so they could just ignore it. And and that feels exactly uh, like you know, the phenomenon of fake news, right? I mean, and so I like I often like to tell the story, you know, to make it compared to my day. Like you know, I I'm a priest, just or or a wizard. Of, of of the world of facts, right? I was anointed at the altar of Oxford University. I have a PhD in blah, blah, blah. And so when I speak facts, they should have a power. But it seems that I live in a world today that I could, uh, you know, like I was on conservative talk radio a couple of days ago in Louisiana. And, you know, I, I cast a fact like 
uh, immigrants contribute more in tax dollars to the economy than they withdraw in social benefits. Like that, I, that's a fact. I, there, there's a process to produce that social scientific truth, and it should it should work, <laughs> but it just doesn't because they live in a different social world where where those ideas and and the process by which they are real for me, uh, they've found a way to just ignore it. And, and that becomes a real challenge. I mean, that really is the, the, the deep societal challenge of what we call fake news, is that uh, the, same, the same facts, they land differently on different people. You know, we don't share the same, uh, the same world of understanding what's relevant and what's not. And so, so many of our debates are just talking past one another now. I say something that should influence your thinking. You just ignore that and say something that you think should influence mine. And, and we're just unable to uh, accept anything in common, you know, anything that is valid for, for both of us so that we come to some kind of reasoned, reasoned agreement. So this is really difficult. This is really difficult um, because we, our whole democracy was born in a world of print. Modern democracy was born in, uh, in, in an environment of the print medium, right? And in the world of print, you know, facts have a weight. If it got printed, if it got distributed, it had a certain influence. Now we've entered a new medium, right? This digital medium, which in some ways is a lot, is a lot more like uh, the oral culture that Europe lived in before print. And in an oral culture, it wasn't so much the words that had influence as who said them, right? The priest, the, the prince, the people who had an audience. And what was true for society was whatever was said to the largest audience, right? So the priest speaks on Sunday and has this big crowd in front of him, and they believe the world that he shows them. No other information spread as far as what was said to that large audience. And so that became truth. And that's what we're struggling with right now. You know, and, and Trump, our, our new priest then must be, or prince must be Kim Card- Kardashian. Uh, because, <laughs> oh my God. Maybe Donald Trump. King Trump. Whoever's got the most followers and listeners. I mean, but, that, but, it, it's so, right. it's, but is it in a place where you kind of, it, it's really democratic in one sense in that we enthrone the prince and priest in that we discern who we want, whose voice we want to tune in and tune out. As opposed to an established sort of figure, I mean, those are established by those who learn how to who the voices are worth listening to. So again, so and okay, so preface by saying I don't have the answer to this. I'm just you know I'm just clarifying what I see as the problem is that again modern democracy, and I'm not talking about ancient Athens, but modern democracy was born in a world of print in in a world of you know rational enlightenment. Right, like 18th, 19th century stuff, where you know it was just no one really had to say it. It was obvious that reason is going to prevail. Right, we we empower individuals to vote, and we have this freedom of speech in the media because we believe in sort of this underlying rationality that we all share. And that rationality was so obvious to everyone because it was just part of print culture that it didn't even say it in the constitution, right? You have to be rational in order to vote. It was just, duh. And now we're, so we're talking about democracy and you're right, it's very democratic, but can democracy function if we don't kind of share some common idea of how we get to truth, of what counts as truth and what counts as falsehood, because if we can't share that, then is it just whoever can build the biggest mob rules, right? I mean, that's, so this is, the, this is, again, I'm looking to you, America, right? You've got to answer this question. God help us. <laughs> but, like, you know, but honestly, like in Canada, for example, we're not really grappling with that yet. We are, but there's still... I, I sense like when, in Canadian public discourse, when it comes to politics, it's like there's still some line of, no, that's kind of crazy and out there. And this is, this is sensible and we should debate within this realm. 
what what you're doing is challenging a far more difficult thing, which is what if we just tear away this common sense of, yeah, yeah, this is the boundary of normal and that is crazy and put everything on a level playing field. Can we somehow re-educate ourselves when we, can we somehow re-educate ourselves to find a common ground, right? And I mean, in a way it's America at its best and its worst. Again, going back to Alexis de Tocqueville, what he was so amazed by is how, how strong the spirit of participation was in, in, in civic life in America. Like everybody was getting participated in running their communities. And, and that spirit is still very, 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 very strong, right? And now, you know, everyone is so empowered that, that it's even, it's, it's, it's challenging the, uh, the idea of like the shared public square. But if you can sort it out somehow, and I don't know if it's, if it's you know, we need to educate ourselves about, you know, fake news and, and become more critically aware and thinking about, or I don't know if it's the education system. I don't know what it is, but I'm hoping you can solve it for us. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because you talk about in the chapter on, um, on Da Vinci, where you're talking about the, um, the, uh, the, the Vitruvian man and how, you know, you have this, this human figure in a box and a circle and kind of the box is earth. The circle is the perfection of heaven. And you mm. think, you know, thinking we're God doesn't circumscribe limits. Thing, you know that that we we we're the measure of things and we can really we can choose to flourish or you know or not or go to depths or heights mm. but then it's not a far move from there to right to like nietzsche saying god is dead which which i don't think nietzsche is mm. is being as prescriptive as people sometimes think and he's just being mm. descriptive saying you know we mm. god stood in metaphys god was a placeholder for a lot of things mm. you know the god or the gods and and we've through the enlightenment scientific mm. revolution things like this now there's a hole there mm. and i wonder you know there's a book written a couple of years ago called all things shining by um uh sean kelly is the chair of the philosopher at harvard and mm. um herbert dreyfus who was his teacher from i think stanford or something but they talk about uh how how basically most cultures have had these great epic narratives whether it's mm. homer or dante the bible you know the bhagavad gita whatever that gives you a sense for the transcendent horizon. And it's a lot of pressure on everybody to have to make that up for themselves. Mm. You know, it's particularly in the West. I mean, I wonder mm. what stands in for something like that. Or it's, it seems like, you know, the eruption of some sort, the erosion of some kind of, at least in America, civil religion or, mm. or civil sense of transcendence makes, it, it seems like it, it accentuates both kind of fundamentalism and nihilism, right? Mm. That, that, that it kind of makes more extreme forms of of the search for you know meaning and things which seems to then to make more tribalism more cantankerous you know rancor that makes the, the problem harder to solve hmm. i mean uh so oh wow a couple of great thoughts there it, I, one one of the things about nietzsche that you know the you know so you know famously said that god is dead and also by implication there is you know, we humanity can step into that space, right? We have this uh, power of of self creation, and and you know, he, so he calls upon the Ubermensch, like the, the Superman in all of us, who 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 can seize, you know, who has the the audacity to seize that power to to shape uh, ourselves and and the world. So I, there's this strong inspiration in. Um, in a vision like that. And, and he worries about the last man, right? Which is sort of like Ed Norton in Fight Club sitting on the toilet ordering <laughs> Ikea stuff. I mean, because when he talks about the last man, it's, it's, it's not a hopeful thing. It's this maybe, hum maybe humanity will atrophy into this kind of small I, shell. I, when, it, when it comes to the question of you know, like, what is, the, what is the narrative that can help us through this moment? Um, you know, I think that America is 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 rich with narrative that can be like powerfully deployed through a lot of these present conversations and debates. And, I, and I'm kind of like, you know, as an outsider, I'm I'm just looking in and I'm perplexed that uh, people don't seem to be doing it more forcefully. So, you know, for example, um, uh, immigration is just in my head again because I was on. Uh, very conservative talk radio a couple of days ago, and oh my goodness, it was really interesting. As you know, not anyway. That aside, 
you know, the, so the fear mongering about immigration is somehow that, you know, if the door is open to everyone, then America is going to lose its identity. And it seems to me that, you know, a powerful narrative against that would be to say that, no, no, no. Uh, America is not for everyone. It's, it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. And it takes both to get here, right? You need freedom and you need courage to make that journey here. And if you have those two qualities inside yourself, then we want you because those are the people that we're going to build this great nation out of, that we have and will continue to build a great nation out of the free and the brave. Now, you know, there is a way of, you know, both creating a space for a more open politics, right? That is, you know, pro-trade and pro-immigration. And at the same time, validating, recognizing, celebrating uh, the histories and traditions of the country. And, and it seems to me that, you know, with just a bit of political creativity, um, America is rich with these kind of powerful shared stories. You're asking for a lot there. American political creativity. <laughs> well, but, but you're saying you confuse, an right? <laughs> instead of openness and exceptionalism being pitted against each other, these could be fused into a new narrative, right? Of, I, of the exceptional openness or open exceptionalism. Kind I of mean, thing. you go, so go back to, you know, you and I, we did this amazing job. We, we, we painted these four quadrants of, uh, of, of politics in America, sort of open, closed, left and right. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump, I think, showed one configuration of those boxes that can lead to uh, political power, but there's got to be more. I think there's got to be more. And it's just sort of, you know, once people see that board, and and the genius of Donald Trump, I think he probably didn't recognize the board, but you know the genius is that he he played on a more accurate map than people who are still fighting, you know the the old war, as we say. But once people see the new board, I think that you know I'm again hopefully optimistic that people will figure out, you know, other winning strategies. Yeah, there's a great book called Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, who is a mm. rabbi and a family systems therapist, but it's called. Uh, the leadership in the age of quick fix, but he actually mm. uses the Renaissance in the, in, in the age of discovery. And he talks about part of these discoveries. What happened was they broke emotional myth. Like, you know, that, that, that basically there's these emotional myths people live with and a few discoveries, the world gets bigger and all of a sudden. And he uses that in family systems work. And he, it, it's funny because he thinks that part of his, his approach to things is actually he's against social scientists that says, you know, a family is a lot different than a platoon. That's a lot different than a corporation. That's a lot different than a hospital. He's nah, they're pretty similar and things like get chronic anxiety, you know, and, and emotional myths and things like these gum up all of these systems. But it, I mean, it seems like what you're saying is, is, is imagination is, is key. Oftentimes we don't just need information. We need imagination. And in these times of Renaissance that are tumultuous and offer i mean there are risks and you talk about things like there's wars and there's pathogens and there's more guns and there's more and yet also there there's a great discovery and, and promise and maybe the greatest discovery is the nourish the nourishing of the imagination and the horizon can expand a little bit and we can begin to ask newer bigger deeper questions boy yeah you know listening to you i, I wish i had written that in the book because that <laughs> <laughs> when you do a third edition, I'll just write that epilogue, one paragraph. I'll tweet it. I'll tweet it. And okay, it. Yeah, yeah. and special thanks to exactly. takes all credit. You know, this idea of breaking myths, I think, is is critical. Um, and you know, one of the stories that I love to tell when I'm talking to audiences uh, is that we need to make new maps, right? And and so many of these myths are like mental maps in our head. And if we don't update our mental maps, if we don't break them then there's so much in the present that we just fail to see. Um, and, and the best story from the Renaissance is got to be Christopher Columbus, right? Who, you know, famously set sail from, um, from, from Europe to find Asia, right? He's sailing west in search of Asia. He, he finds America, but he thought it was Asia. And the reason he thought that, of course, is, well, uh, you know, Noah had three sons. And after the flood, they fathered the three races of man, which is all very gender stereotype 500 years ago but you know europe africa asia three sons of noah that was humanity that was the world full stop and so when columbus with that map in his head discovers this new land he can't make sense of it right it's why of course and you guys must all learn this in school right that america wasn't named after columbus it was named after this guy amerigo Vespucci. Vespucci, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Who, who 10 years later, he's the one who goes to this new world and says, oh, okay, 
I've got it. The reason why we don't find this place in the Bible, why we don't find this place on any maps, is that it is a new world. And it was that breaking of the myth of the old world and making a new mental map, that was what allowed Europe to to suddenly just, you know, launch a thousand ships to explore, you know, with good and bad consequences and the whole history of that, but but to to explore this new world. And I think that that is such a powerful lesson for us today. We have to, in this world full of transformation, right? What are the maps that made sense and served us well in the past, but that because we're holding on to them are preventing us from seeing the new possibilities and to, and to navigating um, the, yeah, the new possibilities of the world as it transforms. And, and so, yeah, being willing to, to challenge myth, to break myth so that we create the possibility to finding new and better ones. I think that's kind of the, that's the core work. That's the core work in a Renaissance moment. Well, I think that for people that are interested in being engaged in that quest, that they could do no better than start with your book, Age of Discovery, because it's great. And it's, you know, one of these great books that's, I wish more people, especially academics, were interdisciplinary books. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's fun because it's a great read and, and fun with the history and it's engaging and yet also offers some really penetrating political and existential analysis for our time. So thanks for writing it and thanks for spending some time talking with me. Oh, that that means a lot. Thank you so much, Scott, for uh, for saying such nice things about my book, <laughs> and uh, and for inviting me into the bunker. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email, or tag someone in a tweet or something. And say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Chris for coming on the podcast. Please do check out his book, Age of Discovery. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.